What makes someone great in God's eyes? We're starting into the part of the Old Testament where we talk about heroes of the faith. What does that mean, and does an ordinary person have any chance of pleasing God in that way? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prand from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these questions and much more in our lesson number three of Through the Bible, entitled, Abraham, Hero of the Faith, How God Chooses and Crafts His People. Here's why it's so important to properly understand what it means to call someone a hero of the faith. In Genesis with the life of Abraham, we have a big shift where God moves from working with all of humanity to a focus on one man who will become the founder of the Jewish nation. Ultimately, three major religions in our world today claim him as their founder, the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim religions. As such, he's held in great veneration by all, and in Christianity referred to as one of the first heroes of the faith. And though we do want to honor him, we also need to clarify that that description, we also need to clarify that description of him, and here's why. In reality, there is only one true hero of the faith throughout the Bible, and it isn't any human. The only true hero of the faith in the Bible is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is so important that we understand this so that our admiration and praise is in the right place, directed to our God and not inappropriately to any human. Also, the Bible tells us some rather reprehensible stories about how humans, even supposedly godly humans, act. And if we focus on them, we can wonder why is this in the Bible and what is it all about? But what people do is not the main focus of the Bible. It's what God does. It is all God's grace that saves us and crafts the lives of biblical characters and ours into what he's planned for us. As Ephesians 2, 8-10 tells us, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Romans 4 applies this whole idea to Abraham, where it says, If Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to approve him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. But the story we're given is a God story, not an Abraham story. What we read in scriptures is, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right, instead of trying to be right on his own. We call Abraham father not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Abraham was first named father, and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life, with a word make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. Here's why I'm going into these verses and clarifying this now. It's important from the start to remember that all we are, all we've been given, 
all we are in the process of growing into as followers of Jesus is totally a gift of grace from God. It was for Abraham. It will be for every Bible character we read about as it is for us. Grace means undeserved favor, but though we can't do anything for our salvation, we must remember God has expectations of us after our salvation. Dallas Willard, in his excellent book on the imperative of discipleship and the lack of it in Christianity today, entitled The Great Omission, reminds us, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. We've been saved by grace. We didn't earn that. But we still need to take action to grow in grace as a disciple, and that takes effort. The Bible gives us examples of how to do this. Look carefully for and be aware of this balance of grace and effort as we study the life of Abraham. And after we go over the facts of his life, I'll have some concluding applications on this whole idea. Understanding this balance of grace and effort and acting accordingly is incredibly important for your Christian growth. With that as background, let's start our study of Abraham. Now, Abraham's story did not take place in a galaxy far, far away. Our faith and the life of the father of our faith, Abraham, does not have a mythological foundation. It began in an identifiable place you can visit today, Ur of the Chaldees. Note, if you're listening to this on the podcast, please go to www.bible805.com for links to the videos where you can look at the maps and other archaeological images I'll be describing. But even though you can't see them, I think it will still make a lot of sense to you what I'm going to talk about. Now, the surrounding countries that are near Ur of the Chaldees, to kind of help you get a picture in your mind where they are, is Kuwait and Saudi Arabia are directly to the south of where Ur was located. Iran is to the east. Ur of the Chaldees is actually in the very southernmost tip of Iraq and way, quite a ways distance to the west is Israel. Now, there are four main areas where our story takes place. This, um, these are also areas that um, are important in the rest of Genesis and actually in much of the Old Testament. We have number one, Ur of the Chaldees. Then we have two, Haran. This was the stopping place for Terah and Nahor. Number three, Canaan, which is, of course, the promised land that will later become Israel. And finally, Egypt. Now, the the reason I'm pointing all this out and focusing for a few minutes on the map is because we need to remember, I've talked about this before, but it's so important to remember that ours is the only religion with maps. The Book of Mormon doesn't have them. Um, a lot of different religions are, are based on mythology and mythological places, but our Bible has maps, maps of real places that you can visit today. Now, let's go into a little more on the archaeology of Ur. Many people have actually seen pictures of Abraham's birthplace, though they most likely didn't know what they were looking at. And these are the pictures of U.S. soldiers standing on the steps of a reconstructed ancient temple. This is during the Gulf Wars that was literally built over a temple that was standing in Abraham's time. The steps and the form of the temple is built over the original temple itself. 
Though the pictures have been shown across the world, the early discoveries and excavations of Ur are one of the great archaeological stories, which I'll get into in just a minute. But that aside, what is fascinating to me is a totally different view I got, and I think that you will also, of what Abraham left behind when God called him from Ur to go to Canaan. My idea, and that of many others, is that Abraham left a Middle Eastern area and lifestyle that was very similar to the one he was going to, a sort of pastoral, wide-open, living-in-tents kind of area, that that's what Ur was like, and he just kind of moved to another one then because that's the way people lived back in those days. Oh, but that was so wrong, because reality is very different. A modern-day equivalent would be like leaving the big city environment of Los Angeles to pitch a tent in the Mojave Desert. Archaeology that I'll be sharing in a minute shows us the reality of this. And to understand what that means, let me tell you about the fascinating discovery of Ur and about some of the things that were found in it. It starts out with the story of a very dashing, real Indiana Jones type character. His name was Leonard Woolley, and he was an English archaeologist who excavated Ur from 1922 to 1934. He was a fascinating character who'd been doing archaeological work prior to World War I in the Middle East, including quite a bit of it that he did with his assistant, a man named T.E. Lawrence, who we also know as, of course, Lawrence of Arabia. Now, the two of them worked for British intelligence during World War I, but a ship that Woolley was on was blown up, and he spent the rest, remainder of the war in a POW camp. After the war, he returned to the Middle East, and in 1922 started work on Ur. Now, this was about the same time that the King Tut excavations were going on in Egypt, which is probably why we haven't heard as much about them. But they were equally as fascinating and really have much more to do with biblical history. Now, T.E. Lawrence wasn't the only interesting character involved with the excavation of Ur. This is just a little side note, but I found it interesting. And that is that Agatha Christie, the famous novelist, was also very much involved with Ur. She went down to the area following her first divorce. She was heartbroken. It was a very tragic thing. She married this man. She loved him very much. He took up with another lady, um, divorced her, married this other woman a week later. And so she, following that, takes the Orient Express and travels down to Baghdad. Somehow or other met the Woolies, who um, I have a picture here on the website of the two of them with their whole crew. And it really looks like a scene of something out of, again, Indiana. Jones, where you can see the Arab gentlemen that were helping them in their dig. Well, there's one other Englishman there, rather a dashing-looking young man, and his name was Max Malawan. Now, Max actually um, was an archaeologist down there at the dig. He met Agatha Christie, fell madly in love with her, and uh, uh, was worried at first that she wouldn't like him because he was an archaeologist and it was such dirty work, but um, she quite 
quite loved his work and also fell in love with him. And after about seven months, which some writers describe as a very whirlwind romance, they got married. Now, he was 13 years younger than she was, but she did share his love of archaeology and went on numerous digs with him, helped him organize his papers, and his work inspired a number of her novels, including Death on the Nile and some similar ones. And according to all accounts, they lived very happily together until her death at age 86. Now, back to Woolley and how National Geographic describes his excavation of Ur. Here's what it says, and I'm quoting here from National Geographic. In the 1920s and 30s, British archaeologist Leonard Woolley dug up some 35,000 artifacts from Ur, including the spectacular remains of a royal cemetery that included more than 2,000 burials and a stunning array of gold helmets, crowns, and jewelry that date to about 2600 B.C. Although now situated on a flat and dry plain, Ur once was a bustling port on the Euphrates River, laced with canals and filled with merchant ships, warehouses, and weaving factories. A massive stepped pyramid, or ziggurat, rose above the city and still dominates the landscape today. Ur emerged as a settlement more than 6,000 years ago, but the real heyday came around 2000 BC, when Ur dominated southern Mesopotamia after the fall of the Arcadian Empire. The sprawling city was home to more than 60,000 people and included quarters for foreigners, as well as large factories producing wool clothes and carpets exported abroad. Traders from India and the Persian Gulf crowded the busy wharves and caravans arrived regularly from what is now northern Iraq and Turkey. One of those 6,000 people during this real heyday there in Ur was Abraham. Now, for more about this city, we can see uh, from an aerial photograph that was a very large city, quite spread out, but the temple structure absolutely dominated the entire skyline. And not only have archaeologists unearthed that, but many, many houses. And we have pictures of private homes that they excavated, and they're incredibly well built, and all these different rooms, and we can see what their lifestyle was really like. There's one that um, some writers have called the Street of Abraham. Now, we don't know if it was actually his street, but he would have seen it because it literally comes from the time that he lived there. Now, in addition to the homes, Woolley spent years excavating a large area of cemeteries, and it was in them that he found some of his more significant discoveries. One of them was something called the Standard of Ur. Now, it was a box with gold and lapis lazuli images on it, depicting a very advanced civilization. On one side, we have images of peace with people eating and drinking and playing music and seemingly uh, having a good time. And then on the other side, images of war, of warriors and battles and um, hunting animals and uh, weaponry and all of this sort of thing. There were also very beautiful artifacts that they dug up from the tombs, a harp with a bull's head, again, in gold. And it's either onyx or lapis lazuli. And um, they seem to really like using animals and stuff like that in their sculpture. 
cultures. We have another one. It might be a goat, or it's it's kind of hard to tell what it is, but a, a, another statue of, of gold and a black stone. There's also numerous artifacts of life included. Every lots of everyday pottery, of course, and then some really interesting things of games. And we see we um, have one example of this beautiful board game and the little tokens on it, very similar to what we would imagine someone playing with today. Uh, beautifully shaped gold and alabaster bowls and vessels and instruments of war. We see examples of a golden helmet that is uh, beautifully engraved and some golden daggers. And then also one of the most famous things is a headdress of someone that they call Queen Panabi. And not only her headdress, which is beautiful and made out of hammered gold, but she has these big earrings that you could you could just envision seeing on a woman today. They're exactly the same style as what we wear today. And then another um, exhibit had a number of pieces of jewelry, chokers, and necklaces, and drop earrings, and hairpins. Again, exactly like what we wear today. If there wasn't the label that these came out of a civilization almost 5,000 years ago, we'd think, oh, you know, this you could have picked up at the flea market or whatever. And then also, too, one of my favorite little things, there's this beautiful little golden shell that the ladies use to hold their cosmetics in. And we can almost see um, uh, very similar things that we do today. But not everything was beautiful. Woolley's journals describe the royal tombs also. And in the tombs, along with the king and queen, many other people were buried. Warriors, attendants, male and female, all richly dressed with gold and weapons, all presumably ready to serve their royalty in the afterlife. Animals were also hitched to carts. But what struck Woolley as so unusual is the orderly arrangement of the bodies of the people and the animals. It suggested to him that they simply walked into the caves and died where they stood. He surmised also that they were probably all poisoned because they held a little cup in each of their hands. Except some were found with their heads bashed in. (laughs) Perhaps they were not willing to drink the poison, but most, it appeared, simply dropped where they stood after they took what was obviously a very fast-acting poison. There's a later artist recreation of them, which is, is just fascinating to look at, where you can see this whole group of people and animals and items and all sorts of things there in the cave, the burial cave. Now, just a, a brief summary of the Society of Ur. It was rich, sophisticated, and urban. Haran, the city that Abraham and his father went to after Ur was very much like it. Also, it was a trade city. They had they had a polytheistic religion where this huge temple dominated the skyline of the city. It was a religion and one based on fear and servitude where you had duties and obligations. But there's little to really no record of any kind of a personal relationship with the deities. They did believe in an afterlife, but it was one of dust and darkness, not any hope or joy. This is what Abraham was called out of.
Now, in addition to a new place, God called him into a new kind of relationship. As I was reading about the religion of Ur and the overwhelming sense of fear and dread into it, I remembered in James 2.23 that it tells us Abraham was called the friend of God. He is also referred to as God's friend in other places that talk about him. And I also remembered, in addition to what this says about Abraham, that Jesus, when he was about to leave his disciples in John 15.15, says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. What an extraordinary privilege! How different than any other images of a relationship with God in the ancient world and with many religions today where the religion is defined primarily by fear that Abraham, the disciples, and all of us who follow Jesus are called to friendship with our God. Now we have the location. Let's go back to the main plot line of the Bible story. We're introduced to Abraham's genealogy following the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now after God confuses the language of humanity and scatters the people, in verse 11 it transitions from the broad genealogy of many peoples into saying, this is the account of Shem. Shem was one of the three sons of Noah, and his lineage of begot this, begot that, begot that, goes to verse 24 and 25, where it says, Nahor was 29 years old at the birth of his son Terah. He lived 119 years afterwards and had sons and daughters. By the time Terah was 70 years old, he had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now let's skip to the next mention of Abraham. Now Abraham's story picks up when his family left Ur and then settled in Haran. But that was not his final destination and God has to call him again. Now note in these uh, early passages he's referred to as Abram and his wife Sarai. They get their new names of Abraham and Sarah later in the book and I'll talk about them but they still have their earlier names now where it says God told Abram leave your own country behind you and your own people and you will go to the land I will guide you to if you do I will cause you to become the father of a great nation I will bless you and make your name famous and you will be a blessing to many others I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and the entire world will be blessed because of you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed him, and Lot went also. Abram was 75 years old at that time. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, the cattle and slaves he'd gotten in Haran, and finally arrived in Canaan. Then Jehovah appeared to Abram and said, I am going to give this land to your descendants. Now before the promise is fulfilled, years of life would pass. Abram gets to Canaan and not long after that, there's a famine in the land. And for better or for worse, as will be the pattern of Israel, they go to Egypt whenever there's trouble. The Sphinx, the Great Pyramids, and much of the greatness of Egypt is all in place at this time. Abram heads down there, perhaps excited about going to a sophisticated urban area with many of the luxuries he hadn't seen since Ur. But when he gets down there, 
we have a truly ugly incident in Abram's life where he asks Sarai to say she's his sister and not his wife. And so in Genesis 12:14 through 16 it tells us, When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken to his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Now Abram may have forsaken his wife, but God did not. God severely judges Pharaoh for taking her. Pharaoh confronts Abram and sends him back to Canaan. Now back home in Canaan, Abram has a dream and great fear. God appears, and Abram challenges God, who's promised in a son, him a son, and reminds God he still doesn't have one. God repeats the promise that he will, but God also tells him his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. In Genesis 15:6, it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This was his response of faith. But it didn't last. Abram and Sarai get impatient. They decide to help God out to give them a son. Sarai comes up with the idea for her maidservant, Hagar, to provide Abram with a son. Hagar becomes pregnant, and Ishmael is born when Abraham was 86. But life was not peaceful for the family after that. And the descendants of Ishmael are still fighting the descendants of the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, even today. The obvious challenge here is the danger of not waiting on God, of deciding to help God out if we don't think he's acting fast enough. We can make a very big mess of life that has unimaginable consequences if we try to push God ahead, if we try to act for him, if we try to do something if we don't think he's acting fast enough. But the years continue to pass. Abraham is now 99 years old. In Genesis 17:1, God says to him, Walk before me and be perfect. In Hebrew, the word means complete. Just because we mess up, get impatient, and do stupid things. These actions do not cancel God's love or his plan for us. We may not wait for God, but he often waits for us. Abram is given the covenant of circumcision, and both Abraham and Sarai's names are changed. Abram, which meant exalted father, becomes Abraham, father of multitudes. Sarai, which meant contentious, becomes Sarah, princess. Isaac is finally born. Ishmael is cast out, but promised a legacy. And many of the peoples who will cause problems for Israel are the result of him being cast out. One might assume now is a time of peace and rest in life for Abraham, as we often assume for ourselves when we get to a certain age in life. We forget we are an eternal people, and God does not operate on an earthly schedule. And so... In Genesis 22.1, it says, After all this, God tested Abraham. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. He obeys, but at the last minute God stops him and provides a ram. Why did all this happen? Now God knew. But Abraham did not, how deep his trust in God truly was. 
Isaac also didn't know that. He was not a child. He was a man when this happened. In this, we see their faith expressed through their actions. As one commentator said, the purpose of much testing is so we see our own hearts. You can't say God is all to you until God is all you have. Until you experience certain things in reality, you can make all kinds of statements, but until something happens to you, then you know whether your faith is solid and real or if it isn't. We also cannot forget the witness of heaven. Think about what happened in Job. Though we aren't told the conversation between God and perhaps Satan in this instance as we were with Job, we can be certain that Satan, the principalities and powers, were watching to see what Abraham would do. Remember, you're never too old for God's testing. You're never going to be in a place where you can coast until you meet Jesus. There is never the concept of retirement in the Bible. After this test, God shares a new name of his with Abraham, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide. Now, it doesn't mean he's just going to give you goodies in life, though God graciously gives many of them to us. What it's talking about is that God first provided the ram as a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, but it is also a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus. Based on Abraham's actions, God again promises to bless him with many descendants, and not only him, but through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. The ultimate fulfillment of that blessing will be with Abraham's offspring many years from now. And of course, we're talking about Jesus here. But Bible commentators have consistently said that this is an important principle for the entire Jewish race and for all of us, that we are always blessed by God, not just for ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. And that takes us back to the reason God saves us by His grace and why we go through what we go through in this life. Remember Ephesians 2.10 where it says, By grace you've been saved. And then it goes on to say, For we are God's handiwork. In the Greek it's the word poema. We're God's poem. We are a creation He is writing. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is the to do and to do which was repeated twice is the word peripateo which means to walk around to do it continuously in other words God is creating us as his poem his handiwork his masterpiece that we should in our lives be continuously doing the good works he's given us to do. Now C.S. Lewis puts it much better than I just did in his book The Problem of Pain where he says Quote, we are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I've called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not make much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly as he meant it to be, but over the great picture of his life, 
the work which he loves, though in a different fashion as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble, and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture, after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. God's grace and His choosing has these implications to us. Sometimes God's calling may not seem like an honor. Many people have more problems as a Christian than before, as God makes you into the masterpiece He created you to be. That can be surprising, but don't be surprised. You may receive a calling you couldn't imagine, a task, a work you don't know how you will accomplish. The Christ-centered demands of everyday life and work, where we're commanded to be kind, to be just, to be humble, might seem excessive to truly act like Jesus every part of every day, everywhere we go, because he does call us to 24-7 discipleship. There are many things in life you may be called to say no to, that those around you will tell you that you deserve, that you are the most important person around, demands that sound so true to today's world, but that you cannot listen to if Jesus is truly your Lord and you are his disciple. We are called to the Christian life based on grace, but we need to put effort into what we do after we are saved to cooperate with God's purposes in our salvation. God called Abraham out of Ur based totally on his grace, but it was a decision of Abraham's heart and mind to trust God when he was asked to sacrifice his son. Here is the commentary from the New Testament on what Abraham's here is the commentary from the New Testament on what Abraham's life teaches us. It says in James two fourteen through seventeen, dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this Christian life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, "Good morning, friend." Be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that weave of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? Finally, here's what makes a hero of faith. 
It is that weaving together of faith and actions. The actions we need to take will be different for each of us as we progress to become more like Jesus. Chances are, however, they'll involve disciplines in our lives, sacrifice of some sort, times of believing God when we can't see the outcome, and waiting far longer than we want for His promises to come true. There will be tangible actions to be done, as well as difficult things to believe. But keep weaving together, believing and acting, always believing God's grace, and acting into obedience to Him. That is how to become a true hero of the faith. And even more significant and precious, how to be called and to become a friend of God. That's all for now. Check out the notes from this lesson, Bible reading schedules, related resources, and all sorts of helpful links and materials on www.bible805.com. I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.